Chapter Six, Part Two of *The Many-Sided Franklin* by Paul Lester Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter Six: Writer and Journalist, Part Two. Having made a success of his newspaper, the editor's ambition expanded, and he conceived the scheme of establishing a magazine imprudently he confided the idea to a friend before he was quite ready to begin and as with his project of a newspaper another publisher heard of the plan and hastened to issue a prospectus of just such a periodical instead of letting this interfere franklin while charging a breach of confidence continued his preparations and after a war of words in the press between the two editors the controversy settled into a race as to which magazine should first appear on february thirteenth seventeen forty one the american magazine was issued and on the sixteenth the general magazine was for sale franklin thus losing by three days the honor of having edited and published the first monthly in america neither publication succeeded the earliest in the field dying with its third number with its publisher not far from bankruptcy and the second after a six-month struggle ceased to appear leaving nothing but a long account on the wrong side of the printer's ledger these years of editorship were busy ones for franklin and kept his quill too well employed to let it produce much besides what was required for his periodicals from 1729 to 1757, the few pieces he wrote which did not appear in one of these publications were, with one exception noted elsewhere, wholly pamphlets of occasion, such as his Proposals for Education and his Account of the Pennsylvania Hospital. But if he produced nothing that can be ranked as literature, while his paper, magazine, and almanac made such drafts on his time, his work in them was teaching him all there was to be learned of Pencraft. An inch of space, or a column, or a page needed to be filled, the printer left his typecase and wrote something of exactly the right length it is to be questioned if any man of letters ever served so long and so difficult an apprenticeship as did franklin in his almost forty years of editorial work and there is small wonder that every year marked a gain to him in style and facility when he took farewell of journalism words had become to him a plastic medium which he could model to any shape his fancy chose in a generation which considered johnson's latinized english as the acme of fine writing he wrote a style which has scarcely been equalled for its combination of simplicity and clearness a query which he wrote gives his own standard quote, how shall we judge the goodness of a writing or what qualities should a writing have to be good and perfect in its kind answer to be good it ought to have a tendency to benefit the reader by improving his virtue or his knowledge but not regarding the intention of the author the method should be just that is should proceed regularly from things known to things unknown distinctly and clearly without confusion the words used should be the most expressive that the language affords provided that they are the most generally understood nothing should be expressed in two words that can be as well expressed in one that is no synonyms should be used or very rarely but the whole should be as short as possible consistent with clearness 
the words should be so placed as to be agreeable to the ear in reading summarily it should be smooth clear and short for the contrary qualities are displeasing but taking the query otherwise an ill man may write an ill thing well that is having an ill design he may use the properest style and arguments considering who are to be readers to attain his ends in this sense that is best wrote which is best adapted for obtaining the end of the writer far more than a good style went to make up franklin's success as a writer poor richard had distinct literary ease he was never at a loss for an aphorism simile or a story to illustrate or strengthen an argument could take another man's idea and improve upon it could refute a whole argument by a dozen words scribbled in the margin and imitate other and bygone styles of writing at will on this facility he drew heavily as he stepped into public life and some examples of his work will show at once his methods and his versatility in seventeen sixty the colonists had reason to dread a termination of the french and indian war before the british success had made certain the retention of canada instead of keeping to traditional lines and repeating in a pamphlet or a squib the argument that had become by repetition both hackneyed and partisan franklin made his appeal in such a way as to avoid both Quote, i met lately with an old quarto book on a stall he wrote to an editor of the london chronicle translated so he goes on to tell from the spanish and a certain chapter of this book is so apropos to our present situation only changing spain for france that i think it well worth general attention and observation as it discovers the arts of our enemies and may therefore help in some degree to put us on our guard against them having thus convinced the reader that whatever follows is untinctured by contemporary bias he pretendedly transcribes from the book a chapter on the means of disposing the enemy to peace and by putting every reason for ending the war into the mouth of an enemy of england he successfully makes each of them seem inimical to that country but this masterpiece of turning an opponent's own guns on him could only succeed if the hoax were well enough done to carry conviction of its genuineness to each reader an excerpt will illustrate how far the writer was able to accomplish this Quote, wars with whatever prudence undertaken and conducted do not always succeed many things out of man's power to govern such as dearth of provision tempests pestilence and the like oftentimes interfering and totally overthrowing the best designs so that those enemies england and holland of our monarchy though apparently at first the weaker may by disastrous events of war on our part become the stronger and though not in such degree as to endanger the body of this great kingdom yet by their greater power of shipping and aptness in sea affairs to be able to cut off if i may so speak some of its smaller limbs and members that are remote therefrom and not easily defended to wit our islands and colonies in the indies thereby however depriving the body of its wanted nourishment so that it must thenceforth languish and grow weak if those parts are not recovered which possibly may by continuance of war be found unlikely to be done and the enemy puffed up with their successes and hoping still for more may not be disposed to peace on such terms as would be suitable to the honour of your majesty and to the welfare of your state and subjects 
In such a case, the following means may have good effect. End quote. A still cleverer imposition was something he wrote in 1773. The stock argument of the English writers who maintained that Parliament possessed supreme authority over America was that the colonists, had they remained in Great Britain, would have been absolutely subject to its laws, and that emigration had not changed this condition. To show the utter absurdity of the claim, Franklin drafted what purported to be an edict of the Prussian king, which began in due form, Frederick, by the grace of God, King of Prussia, etc., 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 and then continued, quote, Whereas it is well known to all the world that the first German settlements made in the island of Britain were by colonies of people subject to our renowned ducal ancestors, and drawn from their dominions under the conduct of Hengist, Horsa, Hella, Ufa, Serticus, Ida, and others, and that the said colonies have flourished under the protection of our august house for ages past, have never been emancipated therefrom, and yet have hitherto yielded little profit to the same, and whereas we ourselves have in the last war fought for and defended the said colonies against the power of France, and thereby enabled them to make conquests from the said power in America, for which we have not yet received adequate compensation, and whereas it is just an expedient that a revenue should be raised from the said colonies in Britain towards our indemnification, and that those who are descendants of our ancient subjects, and thence still owe us due obedience, should contribute to the replenishing of our royal coffers, as they must have done had their ancestors remained in the territories now to us appertaining, we do, therefore, hereby ordain and command that from and after the date of these presents there shall be levied and paid to our officers of the customs on all goods wares and merchandises and on all grain and other produce of the earth exported from the said island of britain and on all goods of whatever kind imported into the same a duty of four and a half per cent ad valorem for the use of us and our successors End quote. The edict, its author affirmed, was written in out-of-the-way form as most likely to take the general attention, and in this it was an entire success. It was printed in the public advertiser, and Franklin wrote a friend that he could not send him one, because, quote, though my clerk went the next morning to the printers, and wherever they were sold, the edition of the paper had been exhausted, end quote. In consequence, the piece was reprinted by request in a subsequent issue, and was generally reprinted in other papers and in the magazines. I am not suspected as the author, the Cozener told her correspondent, except by one or two friends, and we have heard the latter spoken of in the highest terms as the keenest and severest piece that has appeared here for a long time. Lord Mansfield, I hear, said of it, that it was very able and very artful indeed, and would do mischief by giving here a bad impression of the measures of government and in the colonies by encouraging them in their contumacy. What made it the more noticed here was that people in reading it were, as the phrase is, taken in, till they had got half through it and imagined it a real edict to which mistake, I suppose, the King of Prussia's character must have contributed." Of this he relates an incident which must have delighted him. Quote, I was down at Lord Le Despensier's when the post brought that day's papers. Mr. Whitehead was there too, Paul Whitehead, the author of Manners, who runs early through all the papers, 
and tells the company what he finds remarkable he had them in another room and we were chatting in the breakfast parlor when he came running in to us out of breath with the paper in his hand here says he here's news for you here's the king of prussia claiming a right to this kingdom all stared and i as much as anybody and he went on to read it when he had read two or three paragraphs a gentleman present said damn his impudence i dare say we shall hear by next post that he is upon his march with one hundred thousand men to back this whitehead who was very shrewd soon after began to smoke it and looking into my face said i'll be hanged if this is not some of your american jokes upon us the reading went on and ended with abundance of laughing and the general verdict was that it was a fair hit and the piece was cut out of the paper and preserved in my lord's collection End quote. another incident which occurred at lord le despensier's serves to show still another quality of his skill as well as his facility with his pen dr franklin told me john adams relates that before his return to america from england in seventeen seventy five he was in company with a number of english noblemen when the conversation turned upon fables those of aesop la fontaine gay moore and etc some one of the company observed that he thought the subject was exhausted he did not believe that any man could now find an animal beast bird or fish that he could work into a new fable with any success and the whole company appeared to applaud the idea except franklin who was silent the gentleman insisted on his opinion he said with submission to their lordships he believed the subject was inexhaustible and that many new and instructive fables might be made out of such materials can you think of any one at present if your lordship will furnish me a pen ink and a paper i believe i can furnish your lordship with one in a few minutes the paper was brought and he sat down and wrote quote, once upon a time an eagle scaling round a farmer's barn and espying a hare darted down upon him like a sunbeam seized him in his claws and remounted with him in the air he soon found that he had a creature of more courage and strength than a hare for which notwithstanding the keenness of his eyesight he had mistaken a cat the snarling and scrambling of the prey was very inconvenient and what was worse she had disengaged herself from his talons grasped his body with her four limbs so as to stop his breath and seized fast hold of his throat with her teeth pray said the eagle let go your hold and i will release you very fine said the cat i have no fancy to fall from this height and be crushed to death you have taken me up and you shall stoop and let me down the eagle thought it necessary to stoop accordingly the moral was so applicable to england and america that the fable was allowed to be original and highly applauded perhaps the ablest of all his quips was a letter designed to increase the odium of the small german princes who sold their troops to great britain during the revolution this purported to be written by one of the potentates to his officer in command in america Quote, you cannot imagine my joy the ruler declared that of the nineteen hundred and fifty hessians engaged in the fight at trenton but three hundred and forty-five escaped 
there were just sixteen hundred and five men killed and i cannot sufficiently commend your prudence in sending an exact list of the dead to my minister in london this precaution was the more necessary as the report sent to the english ministry does not give but fourteen hundred and fifty five dead this would make four hundred and eighty three thousand four hundred and fifty florins instead of six hundred and forty three thousand five hundred florins which i am entitled to demand under our convention you will comprehend the prejudice which such an error would make in my finances and i do not doubt that you will take the necessary pains to prove that lord north's list is false and yours correct the court of london objects that there were one hundred wounded who ought not to be included in the list nor paid for as dead but i trust you will not overlook my instructions to you on quitting cassel and that you will not have tried by human succour to recall to life the unfortunates whose days could not be lengthened but by the loss of a leg or an arm i do not mean by this that you should assassinate them we should be humane my dear baron but you may insinuate to the surgeons with either propriety that a crippled man is a reproach to their profession then franklin makes the writer continue quote, i am about to send you some new recruits don't economize them you did right to send back to europe that dr Kremers who was so successful in curing dysentery don't bother with a man who is subject to looseness of the bowels that disease makes bad soldiers one coward will do more mischief in an engagement than ten brave men will do good better that they burst in their barracks than fly in a battle and tarnish the glory of our arms besides you know that they pay me as killed for all who die from disease and i don't get a farthing for runaways my trip to italy which has cost me enormously makes it desirable that there should be a great mortality among them you will therefore promise promotion to all who expose themselves you will exhort to seek glory in the midst of dangers you will say to major mondorf that i am not at all content with his saving the three hundred and forty five men who escaped the massacre at trenton through the whole campaign he has not had ten men killed in consequence of his orders finally let it be your principal object to prolong the war and avoid a decisive engagement on either side for i have made arrangements for a grand italian opera and i do not wish to be obliged to give it up a greater imposition still was something he did in seventeen eighty two in an endeavour to make europe appreciate the horrors of another british mode of warfare on his private press at passy he struck off a fictitious newspaper purporting to be a supplement of the boston chronicle filled with certain evidence which he wished to get before the public chief of these was an account of the capture of a large quantity of scalps from the indians in english pay which had been made up in eight packs cured dried hooped and painted preparatory to sending them as a gift to george the third with them was an invoice of each package of which the following are examples Quote, number four containing one hundred and two of farmers mixed of the several marks above only eighteen marked with a little yellow flame to denote their being of prisoners burnt alive after being scalped their nails pulled out by the roots and other torments one of these latter supposed to be a rebel clergyman his band being fixed to the hoop of his scalp 
most of the farmers appear by the hair to have been young or middle-aged men there being but sixty-seven very gray heads among them all which makes the service more essential number five containing eighty-eight scalps of women hair long braided in the indian fashion to show they were mothers hoops blue skins yellow ground with little red tadpoles to represent by way of triumph the tears of grief occasioned to their relations a black scalping knife or a hatchet at the bottom to mark their being killed with these instruments seventeen others hair very gray black hoops plain brown color no mark but the short club or castet to show they were knocked down dead or had their brains beat out End quote. after this gruesome description in the paper almost as if to show the literary versatility of the man comes a pretended letter from john paul jones to the british minister at the hague in a moment of temper the diplomat had termed the naval officer a pirate and it was too good a chance for franklin not to seize upon quote, a pirate the englishman was told is defined to be hostis humani generis an enemy to all mankind it happens sir that i am an enemy to no part of mankind except your nation the english which nation at the same time comes much more within the definition being actually an enemy to and at war with one whole quarter of the world a pirate makes war for the sake of rapine this is not the kind of war i am engaged in against england ours is a war in defence of liberty the most just of all wars and of our properties which your nation would have taken from us without our consent in violation of our rights and by an armed force yours therefore is a war of rapine of course a piratical war and those who approve of it and are engaged in it more justly deserve the name of pirates which you bestow on me following this letter came a number of minor paragraphs and even advertisements all intended to give verisimilitude Quote, enclosed i send you a few copies of a paper franklin wrote to a friend that places in a striking light the english barbarities in america particularly those committed by the savages at their instigation the form may perhaps not be genuine but the substance is truth the number of our people of all kinds and ages murdered and scalped by them being known to exceed that of the invoices make any use of them you may think proper to shame your anglo mains but do not let it be known through what hand they come for once the fraud was too well done and franklin overreached himself by the very ability of his philippic against the ambassador have you seen in the papers an excellent letter by paul jones to sir joseph york asked horace walpole of a correspondent elle nous dit bien de vérité i doubt poor joseph cannot answer them dr franklin himself i should think was the author it is certainly from a first-rate pen and not a common man of war this was the judgment however of a skilled critic and the supplement was generally accepted as genuine 
it was not his contemporaries alone whom franklin deceived by the cleverness of his art while acting as agent in london for a number of the colonies he was compelled if he wished their interests to receive the slightest attention to dance attendance at the levees but he put his disgust at a system of business based on personal influence and corruption into one of the severest pieces of irony he ever penned Quote, it is now more than one hundred and seventy years since the translation of our common english bible he began a paper which he entitled proposed new version of the bible the language in that time is much changed he continues and the style being obsolete and thence less agreeable is perhaps one reason why the reading of that excellent book is of late so much neglected i have therefore thought it would be well to procure a new version in which preserving the sense the turn of phrase and manner of expression should be modern i do not pretend to have the necessary abilities for such a work myself i throw out the hint for the consideration of the learned and only venture to send you a few verses of the first chapter of job which may serve as a sample of the kind of version i would recommend then followed seven paraphrased verses which without the least change of substance were by a mere change of words made to become a savage satire on the monarchical system of government yet such was the skill with which it was written that the editor to whom it was sent printed it in good faith as a genuine proposal and it has since been frequently cited as a serious endeavor of its author thus one of his recent biographers devotes three pages to abuse of the travesty writing quote, when age and experience should have taught him better he made a paraphrase of a chapter of job in no book it is safe to say is the force and beauty of the english tongue so finely shown as in king james bible but on franklin that force and beauty were wholly lost the language he pronounced obsolete the style he thought not agreeable and he was for a new rendering in which the turn of phrase and manner of expression should be modern the plan is beneath criticism were such a piece of folly ever begun there would remain but one other depth of folly to which it would be possible to go down franklin proposed to fit out the kingdom of heaven with lords nobles a ministry and levy days it would on the same principle be proper to make another version suitable for republics nor would he have hesitated to make such a version the bible was to him in no sense a book for spiritual guidance hence it was that the first chapter of job taught him nothing but a lesson in politics something matthew arnold wrote is still more amusing quote, I remember the relief with which, after long feeling the sway of Franklin's imperturbable common sense, I came upon a project of his for a new version of the Book of Job to replace the old version, the style of which, says Franklin, has become obsolete and thence less agreeable. I give, he continues, a few verses which may serve as a sample of the kind of version I would recommend. We all recollect the famous verse in our translation, Then Satan answered the Lord, and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Franklin makes this, Does your majesty imagine that Job's good conduct is the effect of mere personal attachment and affection? I well remember how when first I read that I drew a deep breath of relief and said to myself, After all, there is a stretch of humanity beyond Franklin's victorious good sense the lover of literary curiosities may be almost sorry that franklin's proposal never got any further End quote.
End of chapter 6, part 2